is wending his way at the front. Good. So um, leading a panel discussion on, uh, on cases uh, will be um, Mike Sag. <laughs> The UAB uh, and uh, is a master of cases. <laughs> Go. Okay, thank you. All right. So um, this is late in the morning, and uh, it's time to sort of get blood flowing a little bit, at least uh, uh, stimulating you in terms of uh, cases that will apply. What you've already heard, some of what you heard this morning, and a little bit about what you're going to hear this afternoon. So this kind of uh, sets the stage for uh, things, and uh, we'll just go ahead and jump right in. <clears throat> As you know, yesterday or day before, or last week, I guess, the, <laughs> the FDA uh, advisory panel recommended approval of the Quad, which uh, you're going to hear more of the data about with Joe's talk, but I think you're familiar enough with that. That's uh, Elvitegravir, Cobacistat, plus um, Tadafavir and FTC. And we're going to assume that that pill is already available to you and on the market. And we're going to also assume that dolutegravir is, is available to you. That's a, a once-a-day uh, drug that's a, a strand transfer integrase inhibitor. And so just assume that both of those are available as you answer questions. So the first case is a pretty standard Guy comes in, got diagnosed on routine insurance exam, no medications. If you think he should start therapy, he's more than willing to do it and swears he'll be totally adherent and doesn't have anything else in his life going on that's going to mess it up. His viral load is 30,000. His CD4 count is 650. Would you recommend starting therapy all else being equal? Go ahead and vote. The music is very appropriate for this question because the answer changes about every four weeks. All right, so last year at the same conference, uh, there were probably 13% uh, who said yes, uh, or maybe not, but two years ago for sure. So panel, um, I guess everyone, are you with the majority on this, or anybody say no? It's nice when we can show the panel voting separately. I know. We haven't set it up this year. It's kind of So panel, how many would recommend starting? So pretty much everybody. Okay. Um, any discussion about why? Well, I, you know, I think that the, the data kind of continued to accrue about the benefits of having a CD4 greater than 500. Um, we don't really have any strong randomized data in this population, right. but we have lots of observational data, some of it neurologic, um, some of it uh, uh, outcome-based in, in uh most recently from this COHERE study, which is a large European cohort. They, um, so I think there's just a lot of um, ancillary data, and I think our therapies are getting safer. That's the flip side. Um, so, so the downside to doing it is getting lower and lower. So, and we understand our, uh, the toxicities of our treatment better. Right. Uh, Dave. Right. So, so um, I, I agree. And, and really protection of the end organs that don't repair themselves so well is one of the, the good reasons to do this. There's no question that sort of lower CD4 counts seem to, <clears throat> to reflect damage in the brain that occurs during asymptomatic infection. And so, so I really think that is happening. And recent data from Serena Spudich, who's looking at the acute infection setting, 
shows that there are performance problems and inflammation starting very early uh, within the first year of infection. So with this kind of a viral load, uh, I'd like to protect the brain. Okay. Other comments? Okay. So another way to think about this is just practically. Uh, It's not like we're going to say treat or never treat. It's treat now or treat in a little bit. And uh, this this slide, I think, tells off. This is a guy 30 years old at CD4 count of 650. In five years, he might be down to 500 for those of you who felt more comfortable there. But when you think about somebody on therapy and having great success, they're going to live well into their 70s, hopefully their 80s, maybe longer. And you're talking about a difference if they, even if you just live to, live to 70 or 30, 40 years on therapy versus 35 years on therapy. And you can ask yourself, what in the world is the difference? It's five years. And in that five years, perhaps there's some harm from ongoing inflammation. It, it, in a practical sense, I think we're kind of coming to this realization. There also is data, our data, from this study that I think everyone's heard of by now, but came out about a year ago, um, that basically showed that treating discordant couples reduced transmission to the seronegative by 96%. There's very little that we do in our practices that have that kind of impact. And the one case that was uh, of transmitted virus occurred early on uh, before the uh, seropositive partner had gotten undetectable. So people talk about treatment as prevention. I sort of think about treatment is prevention. So now most people in the audience and the panel agree that they probably start therapy, all things being equal. With this viral load and this CD4, Go ahead and choose. He's HLA-B5701 negative. Um, assume all the other parameters in his profile is liver, uh, kidney, brain, other function is normal. Uh, go ahead and vote which you would prefer to use. Okay. Whoops. It looked like number two was winning. Okay. Oh, there it is. It's like the Kentucky Derby. Um, And uh, a little bit by more than a nose. There's some smattering of other uh, choices here, but I think just for the sake of time, we're not going to belabor this too much, although I think think it's fair to say that a lot of people might have used Blockavir 3TC in this setting, whereas if the viral load was a lot higher, might not have, say it was 300,000. Let's just kind of move on. Um, But now let's twist it a little bit. Uh, his GFR is, estimated GFR is 55. Uh, there's something new called the CKD Epi that's going to be used more and more. It's a formula you have to plug into, but you're going to hear that, tech, that terminology for estimating uh, glomerular filtration rate. But let's say it's 55, his creatinine baseline is 1.6. You just heard about uh, kidney trouble. Let's see if that changes people's minds at all or if you continue to go with the majority there. Let's go ahead and vote. <laughs> I know what Larry David would do. He would just say, point his finger to the sky and rail at the gods. Whoa. So we had a lot of switch. Yeah. Paul? Makes sense. I mean, I, I think uh, especially in the, in the lower viral load, there's no data that it's worse than tenofovir, and, uh, and you certainly start worrying about renal toxicity in somebody who comes in with a baseline uh, creatinine of 1.6. So. Yeah. I, I still voted for tenofovir, um, uh, though, I mean, a little bit more information would have been sure. useful. I mean, if, if he was black, if you thought that his creatinine 
uh, uh, was in part related to HIV-associated uh, uh, nephropathy um, or HIVAN, um, uh, I would anticipate that that would actually get better with therapy. I, I might be more careful about how I initiate it and how I follow up, but um, uh, I still would have gone with um, uh, Tenofovir FTC in, in this case. We're going to get to this on the next slide or so, but let's say the scenario and you had the option of using quad, which has cobacistat in it. And cobacistat, uh, even though it doesn't affect the real GFR, it will affect the estimated GFR by kicking the creatinine up about 0.1 milligrams per deciliter. Would you use tenofovir FTC in that setting, Joe? Uh, you're going to talk about this a little later. Yeah. Um, well, I, no, I, I wouldn't. Um, and, and not because of... Uh, uh, not because cobacistat has renal toxicity, just as no, you point right. out. It just becomes, I think, a little bit harder to monitor it. Um, and if his creatinine ends up coming back 1.8, which is possible, that's certainly in the range of the effects yep. that you see with cobacistat, then you're really kind of stuck because then, then you have to modify dosing and split the pill up, which you basically can't do. Right. Um, because L-vitegravir and cobacist aren't, aren't available except as a combined pill. So right. I think it becomes very cumbersome at that point. Right. You could do a biohexol clearance if you wanted right. to. That might be fun to do. Okay. Um, so you've already heard about this study uh, earlier uh, from Dr. Wyatt, but uh, the take-home point is that uh, they saw um, the group at San Francisco uh, VA uh, saw some uh, increased uh, toxicity uh, renal toxicity, but, but I think what, what the field is sort of sensing from this is that this isn't necessarily new. It's not like surprising brand new data. But what it is is it's sort of underscoring that if there's going to be a problem with tenofovir, it's going to be renal, um, and relative risk is going to be higher as time goes on. Um, another way to look at this, though, there was a, um, a study out of the Scenix cohort that looked at patients starting ARB therapy about 3,500 between 2000 and 2010 when there's a lot of transition to using tenofovir. Now in this cohort, 73% overall and 10% were using abacavir. And just looking at overall in this group lab abnormalities, what they showed was that hematologic abnormalities, this is in uh, numbers of patients per 100, numbers of incidents uh, abnormalities per 100 patient years, that the majority of the problem, um, as you see it kind of coming forward here, was in the first 16 weeks. So hematologic toxicities and liver toxicities were the most common. Renal early on wasn't that great relative to the other two. And in the overall, as, as Joe said earlier, the regimens that we're using these days are much better tolerated, and that's the reason why we're leading towards starting earlier. But notice how over time, after the first 16 weeks, that a lot of this settles down, and in particular the renal incidence drops pretty substantially, as does the other. So while the relative risk of renal toxicity is indeed, um, as was shown in the VA study, uh, the overall incidence is not all that high. And I think everyone here who practices, all of you, uh, understand that pretty well because we've all had a lot of experience with this. So... Let's talk about the third agent. Remember that <clears throat> dolutegravir is available to you if you choose it. It's a once-daily strand transfer integrase inhibitor. And now elvitegravir in the quad is available. Uh, we're going to assume that he's back to having normal renal function. He's back to having um, normal uh, liver and other function uh, and ready to start. Uh, go ahead and vote.
Okay. All right. The majority of people are sticking with uh, standard sort of regimen that's been the most popular for years, although uh, studies shown back in 08 or 09 had this number not at 60%, but more like 78 to 80%. So it looks like there's some competition coming up for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, there might be some diversity on the panel. Uh, Chip, what would you do in, in this setting if uh, all things being equal, viral load of 30,000, uh, lifelong therapy? Well, I stuck with uh, with Fabrin's not because uh, it was the only approach, but because there wasn't any reason not to use it. If he has any CNS difficulty, there are all kinds of other options in him, and uh, it uh, offers, um, since I also voted for Tenofovir FTC, a uh, single pill once a day, but uh, there are all kinds of other options. If he runs right. into trouble, and the message really should be to him, let's try this, and if you have any difficulty at all, uh, we can come back and punch another button uh, with the music playing. Right. Other thoughts? Other well, if you um, wanted to use real pivoting, this probably would be the case to use it in with a lower viral load. Um, has the advantage of not having the CNS toxicity. Probably in this setting has equivalent uh, uh, efficacy. Although, as Chip was saying, you know, no study, none of these have really beaten the favorins in head-on trials. Right, and. Chip, you're going to be talking later today about hepatitis C. Let's say he's hepatitis C co-infected and he doesn't need hepatitis C therapy now, but let's say in two to three years, as you're going to talk about, he might take all oral regimen. Would that affect what you'd put him on right now? Well, as we'll discuss later, there are some difficulties with drug-drug interaction, particularly with the protease inhibitors and some of the uh, current HCV protease inhibitors. But by two years from now or three years from now, uh, we probably won't be using uh, uh, much uh, pegylated interferon, ribavirin, or the current HCV protease inhibitors. And uh, so I don't think uh, in somebody that we're talking about treating for HCV several years from now, I'd worry too much about it. But if the treatment were more recent, yes, I'd be more strategic about uh, choosing drugs that would give me more flexibility in my HCV therapies. Okay. Is there any on this list that you think are particular, you know, ones that you'd favor over another? Well, integrase inhibitors are easy uh, in terms of drug-drug interactions, and uh, this would be a, a time to uh, to really uh, break the bank and uh, treat for uh, uh, try to use most expensive drugs in all the classes. <laughs> yeah, and it's likely, as you can imagine, that as dolutegravir gets released, uh, it's going to probably be paired up in a fixed dose combination with abacavir and and 3TC in some sort of fashion, just based on who's producing that product. Uh, so you'd have to know about the HLA B5701, et cetera. And, Mike, just to, just to add really fast, the, the, this afternoon we'll go over some of the uh, quadruple therapy data with cobacistat. And, and um, th I think once you see that data, you'll, you'll feel that that's an option. So I think that one important thing that, that needs to be re remembered, but hopefully I won't forget to tell you, is that cobacistat is going to have almost all the drug-drug interactions that ritonavir has. So that, that integrase-containing regimen um, with L-vitegravir would not be particularly good if he, if he needed HCV therapy because the drug interactions are basically unknown with the uh, HCV PIs. Okay. So now we're going to put him as more advanced disease. He's coming to you for the first time. He's 30 years old. He has no other abnormalities. Let's say he's not hepatitis C co-infected, but he does show up with a CD4 count of instead of 650, now it's 65. I think everybody would agree that he should be treated. And his viral load is 310,000, 310,000. Uh, let's look at this list and see if there's any favorites that you have on here at this point. Jim Lang. 
Dating game. Dating game. Uh, yeah. Okay, there we go. So, a lot of people stuck with the Fovereigns, dropped down from 60% to 40, but coming up is the uh, uh, boosted integrase inhibitors, sorry, boosted uh, protease inhibitors and raltegravir. Thoughts? Are there, the trip you had gone with the Fovereigns earlier, did it change, did, did it strike fear in your heart that his CD4 count is now lower, his viral load's higher, does the Fovereigns work less well? No, there really hasn't been convincing data that Fovereigns doesn't work just as well on high viral load uh, patients for uh, about three months, uh, seven or eight years ago. People had that fantasy, but uh, I think since then most of us feel pretty comfortable with it in high viral load. It would be a reason not to use Rilpivirine, right. uh, but Fovereigns is really quite a solid choice here. And to the credit in the audience, no one picked Rilpivirine in this setting. Um, Joe, what about uh, the speed with which viral load drops if you're on raltegravir? Does that matter? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I, I think it probably doesn't matter. I, I think it probably, it's nice. It's um, certainly reassuring to patients. They come in in four weeks and their viral load's gone from 300,000 to 400 or even less than 50. That, that is solidifying. But I think clinically, it doesn't really make much difference. Um, I hypothesize that this patient perhaps may not be the best uh, a person for adherence because he's showing up with a CD4 of 65. And while I completely agree with Chip, Favrins is without a doubt, I don't know of a single study where Favrins underperforms at high viral load or, or, or low CD4. I, I cho chose a boosted PI because I was worried not so much about efficacy, but I was worried about uh, resistance emergence. Okay. And what about CD4 count rise with the Favrins versus a Raltegravir boosted PI? Is that it's a little blunted with the Favrins? Does that matter? Well, the data are actually consistent across multiple studies, and it's not just a Favrins; it's a Favrins tenofovir FTC. Right. Um, uh, a Favrins paired with other drugs, you don't see it, but you clearly see this 30 cell difference. I, Probably it doesn't matter, but, but I don't know. Yeah. But it, it's a very good point. You're right on target. There yeah. is a difference. And if you study enough people, it's, it's statistically significant. I went with a boosted PI in this for the same reason. Just, Just concerned about adherence. And, mm. you know, I, I agree that there's just a minimal change, but this is where you want to squeeze all the benef benefit you can out of the CD4 counts. Right. Well, being the devil's advocate, I mean, if I've got somebody I'm worried about adherence and I have a choice of a one-pill-once-a-day regimen and That's, one you have to yeah, play around yeah, with, yeah. I, I'm going to go with one-pill-once-a-day and talk to them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So <laughs> what is success? <laughs> <laughs> the slide speaks for itself. Uh, go ahead and, and vote. We're just for all friends here. <laughs> okay. All right. 20% of you. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, <laughs> so. That's what I went for. <laughs> uh, California guy. All right. So I guess we can flip this question two ways. And what would be success, I guess, what depends on the level of detection of the virus. John, thoughts on this? Yeah. I, I think the data would say that the lower you drive the viral replication, the better off the patient is. And, and with the new testing, you get down, you get down to 20 and routinely. And then if you, I guess if you really want to know, you can go to the, do the very difficult ultra, ultra, ultra looking sensitive. down right. to one. 
Right. But um, I, I don't think that's necessary clinically. Right. I, I think under 20, actually under, if you just get people under 50, they're going to do good. well. Yeah. And, and it, so it, it's just that the, the availability of less than 20, which most uh, labs now have, I think. So if you have a patient who you have an assay that goes less than 20, but it shows up at 38, are you going to be concerned about that? No. Okay. Joe, is there a point where you would be concerned? Well, I'll, we'll get to this this yeah, afternoon. Yeah. But, but no, it's, it's fine because I think it's really easy to define what success is. Success is to get the viral load as low as you possibly can. The question is, what's failure? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so 38, I'm not going to worry about. Uh, I'm going to think about it. It's going to annoy me, but but <laughs> but, but I, I refuse to worry about it. Um, on the other hand, if you if you have you know measurable reproducible viral loads above 100 or maybe 200, then I think there's a problem. Yeah. Um, and, and and you're going to talk about those data later. The question is what to do. Right. Okay. I think that is the point, that uh, there's really two questions buried in here. Um, one is, is there a viral load value of consistently and reproducibly uh, coming back at, let's say, at 250? Is there a risk of ongoing resistance, uh, emergence of resistance? And Joe will tell you about it a little bit later, but the answer generally is yes. But below 200, below 100, that doesn't seem to be happening very much. On the other side, you're going to hear a lot in the next five years about cure, the research on cure, and the big debate there is even when you have somebody less than 50 or saving less than 20, there's some there's a camp that says yes, there's ongoing replication even though you can't see it, and there's other people who say you're crazy, there's no ongoing viral replication. Just real quickly polling the panel, um, yes or no, ongoing less than 20 copies consistently, is there ongoing replication? But it depends if you believe Ashley Haas and Tim Shacker. Okay. But you know, so do you we're argue that there is that it's in the lymph node. Um, they've had some interesting data. Yeah. I, I don't think there is. I mean, in any given patient, there might be, you know, sporadic episodes of replication. I, I think what Tim Shacker has shown, and if you push him, he'll tell you, he will admit that it's ongoing virus expression. Right. Mm. Um, and and whether question. there's replication or not, I don't think it's defined yet. So I, I, I vote no, but it's right. hard to prove a negative. I think the, the compelling thing is that no resistance evolves. Right. right. When you're below 50. I mean, uh, it's very, very difficult to show <laughs> resistant virus coming out. So uh, expression. So to weigh, in, to weigh in on myself, even as a moderator here, but I would agree with, with that premise that if you have ongoing replication, at some point you're going to have a breakthrough, and that breakthrough is going to have resistant virus. It, it almost has to. But the second point that I haven't heard many people say is that virtually all replication, if it's happening, is going to be happening in lymph nodes. It's not like the lymph node is a sanctuary. The lymph node is where the action is anyway. But they argue that it is a sanctuary. Right. But, but that's where all replication happens all the time. It doesn't happen in the bloodstream with cells flying around at five liters per minute. It's happening in the lymphatic tissue, in the gut, in the lymph nodes, in the spleen, elsewhere. Chip. I was going to say the, the agents we use don't <clears throat> prevent uh, the uh, activation of uh, HIV RNA production. Right. What they do is they prevent what happens after that. De novo uh, infection. They prevent uh, maturation of the viral particle and uh, entry and, and uh, reverse transcription. So <laughs> detecting a little bit of RNA 
doesn't mean that the drugs aren't working. Right. And if the drug virus can't get beyond that, it can't develop resistance. And uh, it's certainly not something that you can do anything about right. with the agents we currently have. Right. So I wanted to bring that out sort of in a sort of twisted way to get to the discussion about cure because we don't have a talk on that uh, this time. But um, that was a way to kind of get to it. Let's move on. The cases get a little quicker uh, as we go. So this is a same guy, basically. Right. And you've recommended therapy. He's at 250. It doesn't really matter. The viral load's 30,000. And go ahead and pick. This is sort of anticipated that folks would be saying more or less what they what you all said. So I've just narrowed it down to, to four options, or if you don't like any of those, you can pick some other fixed-dose combination or non-fixed-dose, whatever you want. Uh, go ahead and vote. You all know what that is, right? Charlie's Angels? Yeah? No? Wasn't it? I think so. Okay. So the majority of you went with... Uh, but here, here's a twist. You receive a fax from the patient's <laughs> insurance company. His medicine's been changed to Zenobidin 3TC and Nevirapine because it's on formulary. Your response. <laughs> or you carefully explain the toxicity and you file a formal appear. Or you agree to the change and you want to see what happens. Uh, let's go ahead and vote. What do, what do you? What would you do? <laughs> See how radical the audience is. All right, a bunch of. We're in the Midwest. <laughs> People right. are very polite. Yeah. So, uh, Chip, I think one thing to to. Uh, uh, to be to emphasize here is that when you make a generic change, you're changing generally the same medicine for generic medicine. Tenofovir and, and AZT are not the same medicine. Right. And uh, that's really, I think, an important concept. Yeah, and I think, and right now, if you look in the new guidelines from the HHS that came out in March, there's a new table there that has cost. And you'll see that the generics are not that less expensive than the brand names at the present time. And that's likely to change. But I think one of the things that is likely to come up in the next five years, uh, as more drugs go generic, I think what we're going to see is more pressure. Because let's say, uh, I don't know, what's the normal three-drug regimen cost in sub-Saharan Africa for Trivir or something like that? It's, what, $300, $200 a year, something like that? I like realize a it's a different day. location, right? Roughly. But if you compare that to, say, 14000 you can see how policy-wise people say, well, try it. And then see, um, it, it's just to be provocative, not to say that's where we are, and necessarily where we're going to be. Just by a show of hands, how many people have already received this type of pushback from any kind of payer? None. A no, few. No, a few. No. Okay. In New York, there was a little bit more. In San Francisco, I think there was some. No. It's but rare there. Rare. Okay. Oakland, there's somebody was telling me about it. But anyway, just something just to kind of prepare us for the future as we think through this. But I think Chip's point is the main one that usually when you have generic substitutions, they're generic substitutions, and they're equal. All right, so now we have a guy who's been infected since 99, uh, taken most of the drugs on and off for years. He's now on Tadafir FTC and boosted Darunavir. CD4 count today is 33, as Nader ever was 6. Three months ago he was at 76, however, and his viral load now is 128,000. You send off a genotype that's a pan-sensitive. Have anybody ever seen a patient like this? All right. 
He refuses to take ARVs now because, quote, my grandmother took pills and she died. <laughs> On today's visit, what would you ask? <laughs> what medicines do you want to take? When do you think you want to take medicines? Do you have your affairs in order? <laughs> Let's go ahead and vote. Elizabeth Montgomery. Oops. Thank you. All right. So, 30% are giving up, right? Um, this is just kind of a question. I, I was trying to think about things that we all experience, but no one ever talks about in public. Um, so, what a panel, how do you deal with this? John, do you have a approach to somebody like this? Well, on the third visit, I said, get your affairs in order. Right. If, if after three visits I couldn't convince them to individual take, I, and I've done that, you know. Um, but I, I think I, I go first with uh, what, when do you think you'd be ready, and what, what would make you ready? Right. I mean, the good news is he probably has a lot of choices. It's a question of what does he want to try and that type of thing. Well, what's his CD4 again? It's uh, about uh, 33 today. Then I think the third point is really an important one. I mean, he's at risk for really bad stuff in a short order, and he's somebody that you want to be thinking about advanced directives and the rest. I mean, it doesn't prevent you from doing the other stuff, but uh, but I do think that sometimes we forget what it used to be like in this field Yeah. Um, when you had to deal with It was with pretty things. bad. Yeah. Dave, so do you think he has any kind of underlying neuropathy? I mean, uh, uh, sorry, encephalopathy or? <laughs> you know, uh, seriously. I think, seriously, this is, this is a problem of uh, sort of what, how, how, how much do you allow people to run their lives when, when it's irrational? And so, you know, I think I, I would probably have asked what the grandmother was given and, and what he's afraid of. And so, so you know, if, if there are a rational set of. She got D4T. <laughs> D4T. <laughs> If, if they're, you know, I think that trying trying to to un, unravel what people are afraid of uh, is is a first step. Uh, the second is to to think about whether people are have given up and really it's a sort of a way a slow suicide uh, expression and and whether um, you know you, you check for competence but uh, usually these people are perfectly competent and and you can't declare that they're not right um, <clears throat> but but really trying to unravel what it is that has frightened them about this or why they don't want to live if they understand uh, that that they're headed toward death is is the practical thing. You use the word irrational. I just sort of use a friendly word like crazy. I, I don't know how to. It's not. They're not necessarily. They don't have a mental illness per se necessarily. It's just. It's just thinking in a world in a way that most of us who are consequence driven and trained for years and understand kind of uh, issues. We have to understand what they're thinking and well, why. They, but they may have a diagnosable and treatable, treatable mental Condition. illness. Yeah. And, and, you know, it may be that you have to start with that even though you right. have little time. That's right. Okay. Just I thought like this question there, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Just shout it out real loud. I'll repeat it. It's not really a question, but more of an observation. I mean, in my treatment, I, in the pre-hot era, you have people who had viral loads this high, uh -huh. CD4 count this low, who do well for a time. Sure. Right. So the, the comment is that there are there in the old days, there were a number of people who did well for some period of time, maybe a year, two, three, maybe more. And then they uh, the other thing to bring up, though, is that he has a low CD4 count. He may have an underlying OI, 
Yep. You start him on hot therapy, and he may develop Get iris, iris. Yep. and then he'll say, well, what the hell are you giving me? Yeah, I was yeah. feeling mm-hmm. fine before it's that, complicated. and you're making me yeah. sick. Right, right. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to go to something a little bit more common. Um, same type of person, been on and off of drugs, uh, now on a pretty robust regimen, but having trouble. And now you send off a phenotype and a genotype, and it's pan-resistant. And the SSTI, the strand transfer uh, 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 integrase, remember I sort of misspelled that, uh, shows a 148 mutation uh, in the integrase gene product. So if you're going to use an anchor drug here, which one would you pick? Go ahead and vote. Shame Dr. Benson's not here. <laughs> she would be singing that with us. <laughs> so let's go ahead and see. And, all right. So I was anticipating that people would be really good test takers because that's how you got here, right? <laughs> years and years of tests. So typically, if you have a question that has two answers that only differ by a little bit, like answers four and five, one of those two is likely correct. Okay. Joe, you did the study. Yeah. Um, so. Basically, the, the point of this is that, that the integrase inhibitor resistance of 148, which almost always shows up with multiple other integrase mutations, pretty much wipes out raltegravir and elvitegravir. Um, and so dolutegravir, which we'll, I'll show you the data the, this afternoon, has activity in this setting. But um, even though it has pharmacokinetics to support once-a-day dosing, um, there's an absorption issue. So it actually is, um, you get higher, consistently higher levels with twice a day dosing. So, yeah. so that's your anchor here. The, the problem is, is you, you might have an anchor, but no ship behind it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so this is really, a, this is a tough case. Yeah, it is a tough case, but that was the point. And uh, any comment on the, I guess it's hard to say without seeing the details about whether atrovirine or ropivirine will work. And the Runavir may have some residual activity, et cetera, but you're right. That was the point, and, and you'll go over data a little bit later. Okay, 34-year-old woman is diagnosed with TB. As part of the evaluation, she's found to be HIV positive. On her initial labs, her CD4 count is 82 and her viral load is 76,000. She doesn't have any other significant medical condition. She gets started on a standard four-drug anti-TB regimen. turns out that the TB is pan-sensitive, so it's not a resistant. And that her HIV virus is wild-type. At what time after starting anti-TB therapy would you start ARV? CD4 count is um, 86 or so in the mid-80s. Go ahead and vote. All right, so we have a range of answers, partly because this is in a little bit of a gray zone. Um, anybody want to discuss this? Chip, you want to you do some international work? Well, I think, the, uh, the, again, this is uh, uh, one of these questions where you have a range of, op- of opportunities to get it wrong, but the only way to really get it wrong is to delay. And uh, the point here is that uh, early is important. Uh, immediately is, is probably not the right answer because you can't take all those pills in a single glass of water. So uh, I went with him <laughs> two weeks uh, is, my, uh, is my approach here. 
Okay. So you'd say that answer five um, and certainly answer six would be too late. Right. And so the data that we're drawing on are some recent studies, and they're summarized in the HHS guidelines, but you can find them on the web in a lot of places. But there were two studies that were done in uh, mostly sub-Saharan Africa and other uh, uh, resource-constrained uh, countries that showed uh, that, that if CD4 counts less than 50, starting in the first two weeks is important in terms of mortality. But as the CD4 count got higher, there was less impact on mortality. And uh, so the guidelines have sort of interpreted this to say CD4 very low, start soon within the first two weeks. CD4 moderate, say between 50 and 200, within the first two to four weeks. And then if it's higher than, say, 250 or so, there's no, no necessary real harm by starting earlier. A little bit more concerned about iris. Um, but, but starting within four to eight weeks is generally reasonable, um, I think, is a summary of that. Okay. Now, what would you use? Remember, CD4 counts low. Um, she, uh, he's in the United States, or she's in the United States. Uh, go ahead and vote. Superman, yes. It took a little while to rev up, didn't it? Uh, that's before the John Williams version of the music. It was uh, before there was any kind of color on television. All right, so a lot of people went with the Favarins. Raltegravir was a second choice. Um, let's say she's on Rifampin. Um Panel? Yeah, you, you had her on Rifabutin, but, but if... I had her on Rifabutin. Okay. Yeah, but, 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 okay. But, I mean, if... if you were in a situation where you were compelled to choose rifampin. I, I think that I think those two choices are still kind of in in the ballpark. Uh, the, I think the package insert for raltegravir suggests you need to double the dose in that setting with rifampin. Um, uh, raltegravir is very tricky pharmacokinetics, um, and efavirenz. You know there, there um, are you know, questions about what you should do with the dose of efavirenz. So I think most TV experts, and Chip could probably comment, is, is uh, you, you don't really need to adjust the dose of efavirenz. But um, I think in the new package insert, they talk about adjusting right. dose of efavirenz, which doesn't, I don't think, makes a lot of sense to the people who are in the know. Right. I, I agree with what you said. Yeah. Okay. The, All right, the, so the one the one reason in someone with a higher CD4 to, to delay a little bit is is you know if you get a rash or you get LFT abnormalities it certainly um, you know it, it helps sort things out and and um, but it's tricky when it's 86 or whatever yeah. you, you had if it was 150 I think the other thing to remember too in those studies that um, that were done is that there was mortality from iris. It was pretty low, but it did exist. So um, in those individuals with low CD4 who you begin kind of almost right away within two weeks or at two weeks, you know, there's, there's a real risk of, of, of serious TB-related iris. So you have to really follow those patients incredibly carefully and, and be comfortable um, using steroids if, if you need to. Right. I think the whole point of presenting the case is because there are new data that address this. We're not covering it uh, elsewhere in this program, but also that just to communicate that it's a little bit complicated, and, and we don't see that many cases of TB and HIV in the United States. And we do see it, but it's not like rampant. 
But as you go to sub-Saharan Africa, other places, there's a lot of TB, and that's where the studies were done. But just to just kind of put the point out there that as you encounter a TB patient, you might want to go back and look at the guidelines and, and see what, it's, uh, what the most current uh, recommendations are. All right, so here's this is picking up on Trip Bulick's talk earlier today. There's a 23-year-old gay man who is seronegative, lives in Manhattan. We could put him in Chicago. Um, he's sexually active, estimates one to two different partners per month, but it's, he thinks it may be even more. He's heard a prep, wants your advice. He claims he'd take it regularly. He wouldn't miss a dose, he says. He's very serious about this. You'd recommend? Go ahead and vote. Got this one. Herman Munster. Yeah. I'm not making a comment about the patient. I'm just saying that was the music that we were hearing. Okay. Um, so 68%, two-thirds feel compelled, and about a quarter say uh, nope. And uh, no one wanted to punt. That's interesting. Um, what is a panel? Where do you all feel? I, I, went, I went for one. I mean, why would you not use a prevention tool that somebody says he really wants to try? Okay. Um, you're obviously going to reinforce every other prevention strategy, um, but he's asking you for help. Okay. Other thoughts? John, what would you do? I voted um, No. And I guess I'm really not sold on this whole concept with uh, using antiretrovirals to uh, prevent infection in a negative individual. Um, I think the data looks great if you if you really can <coughs> document that they're they're taking the drug. Yeah. But um, I I'm very I'm very concerned. But when we get and this starts generally, uh, what's going to happen? And the long-term effects of these drugs, I don't think we know. I mean, we're talking of 23. He's going to live. If he if he doesn't get infected, he's going to live to be close to 80. Yeah. And um, one presumes at least until 35, he'll remain sexually active. Right. <laughs> but but once Mitt Romney comes out in favor of gay marriage, he'll get married. And that's right. Take care. That's another form of uh, reduction of. Transmission of things. What about tenofovir alone? No. No data. Probably ain't going to work. I wouldn't didn't, think. Wasn't as good. Yeah, it didn't work as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, Dave. So um, <clears throat> I don't I don't prescribe for for this group uh, normally, but I know that the HIV providers at my place like to have somebody at least come back a couple times to you know to make sure that they're going to be compliant and that they actually are committed to the course and so so it seems to me the first visit when somebody comes asking for information that you wouldn't you wouldn't just write the prescription and get them started but you'd ask them you'd, you'd teach them about the choices and the risks and benefits and ask them to come back and discuss it again before you do it right another thing that's subtle in this question about option 4 is that if you read carefully the guidance document and, and what the FDA heard is that there's going to be recommendations about follow-up, that it's going to be frequent and a lot of visits and a lot of lab checks, uh, not just for renal tolerability and toxicity, but also for HIV because you don't want to have somebody seroconvert, 
and then continue on a two-drug regimen for a long period of time. So there's going to be a lot of a lot of time. And so the question now, just in a practical show of hands, how many of you feel in the practice you are currently engaged, as busy or not busy as you are, how many of you think you can take on this new patient group reasonably? Okay. So the majority can't. And that was the reason why I put the referral up there, but it may not have been clear. That it's, it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of effort. And so there's a lot of questions. But here's, here's what happens. You give him the prescription. He comes back the next day in sticker shock. He can't afford this. You recommend a pot of drug assistance program, which there may be. I don't know if that's been worked out yet. Um, no prep. Uh, refer to another provider <laughs> so they can fill out the paperwork or refer to uh, the Chicago Department of Public Health. Are you going to give him a ticket from New York to... Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, he's now in Chicago. Yeah, he's with you. Go ahead and vote. Linus. I know, it doesn't cost peanuts. Okay, so... So here we sort of, uh, the, the drug assistance program, if it's there, would be fine. Referring to Chicago, that's great, because I heard that the city doesn't have any budgetary problems, and so that's good. <laughs> Rahm Emanuel has fixed everything. And, uh, is that right, John? Close all the streets starting next week. Uh-huh. Okay. So the point is that not only do people have to provide this care, they also somehow figure out a way to get it paid for. These are the data. You've already seen them, uh, the trip showed. But the finances, um, just if you take the raw data from Bob Grant's study in the New England Journal and just do some calculations, you have to treat 118 individuals to prevent one new infection. That's assuming the 44% effectiveness rate. If it's obviously higher, it's not going to be uh, quite as, as striking as that. If the cost of medication is $12,000 a year, the cost to prevent one new infection is $1.5 million just for drug costs. And, um, and if you translate that, flip it around, it's going to cost um, to treat it. And if you say, how much does it cost to treat an infected person a year? It's 18000 So you could, you could treat one person uh, 78 years for the $1.5 million. So this is kind of the policy battle that we're going to find ourselves in. But like most economists will say, it's not, it's not maybe appropriate simply to ask the question, what does it cost? Although the people paying are concerned about that, the policy folks are saying, what's the cost effectiveness? So we can look at that. And this is a study that just came out in the annals uh, a few months ago that Paul Volberding, after he saw me ranting on this in the last slide, said, well, you've got to be more balanced. I said, okay. So here, I'm going to blow this up for you. So... If 100% of the people start PrEP or 50% or 20% and this versus the status quo, the way that you do um, these types of analyses are something called quality-adjusted life years, so the cost per quality. Now, this is in dollars, so that's $216,000. So, way I don't know how to interpret that. A quality in terms of cost-effectiveness is dependent on the community or the society or whatever that it's in. So, in the United States... Cost-effectiveness cutoff is somewhere between 50000 per quality or $100,000 per quality. So, for example, mammography screening is somewhere around 35000 And a retroviral therapy for somebody who's got HIV is around $20,000 per quality, something like that. So this is about tenfold that. But as this paper points out, 
If we look at the group, I think this got a little, oops, sorry, can I go back one? I didn't show, but uh, unfortunately, but if you go to the high-risk group and look at just 20% of those, 100%, uh, 50%, or 20%, then you start getting cost-effective. So if you look at, say, the 20% of people who are highest risk and you treat them, uh, then you will have the opportunity to make a difference that's cost-effective. So it's very nuanced, from the, but a health economics argument could justify the policy, assuming you can select out the high-risk people. And then the question becomes, how do you know somebody's high risk? So for us in the trenches, as this gets approved, and personally, I don't have any problem with them approving it as a package insert. People choose to use it. I think it's been shown to be effective to some degree, and I don't think we should restrict somebody as a practitioner or a patient from getting it. The question is, who gets it? Simply somebody who asked, maybe. I think that point was made by the panel. Um, but uh, we're going to have to judge for cost-effectiveness purposes in a way who's really at high risk. So the, uh, a gay man, 23 years old in Chicago, is having, say, two partners a week. Yeah, high risk. We can use the definition of the study. Okay, we'll call that high risk. But what about moderate risk or low risk? And risk, doesn't, risk isn't constant over time, right? It varies. Um, month to month or year to year. Who pays? If it's in the package insert, there's no obligation for anybody to pay necessarily. But if it's public policy, if CDC comes out and recommends it, doesn't that mean the government has to pay? And if the government pays, what about the ADAP waiting list and other things that we're struggling with for the people who are already infected? These are, I'm just don't have answers. I'll hear what the panel says in a second. Who follows and manages? If someone develops renal failure, is that provider responsible for the damage if the patient turns around and sues them? I don't know. Um, and what are the unintended consequences? Um, we've got a few minutes left. Maybe just open up the panel to have discussion. So just uh, make a point that's really unrelated to the point you're making, which is that um, we've seen a, a lot of cases of syphilis and of acute hep C in our, uh, in our patients in San Francisco. And... Whatever you do with this patient, if you, especially if you use PrEP, you really have to reinforce um, barrier protection because people, I think, this will be another reason not to use barrier protection, which is causing a lot of problems. So that would be the unintended consequences. Yeah. Other thoughts from the panel? Yeah, I don't know much about a lot of those things up there, but, but as I think you already said, the, the devil really is in the details. And, and you know, I mean... There are some people that are kind of at constant high-level risk, but but most people have more intermittent risk. And and um, how often do you test people? I think that the 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 greatest concern for resistance is in people who take it intermittently and then get infected when they're not taking it. So they assume they're at lower risk, or maybe they're with a, a steady partner who you know is is um, uh, they feel that they're at lower risk for, and and then. Um, and then they start once they're infected. To me, that's the biggest concern about resistance. I think if people are actually taking the drug and it's in their body, it's very likely to be effective. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and I, I do think there's this balance between, uh, you know, uh, providing medication to those who already have infection. And we certainly don't want to tip that balance in a, in a direction that... That, that leads to less access to people who have an infection. It's, a, it's really a complicated problem. I, I think you've outlined the, 
the, the, the issues, the, the question of what, what, are, what are the solutions, and it does, does it just become like a boutique therapy for those who have insurance that will pay for it or they have enough money to pay for it? And, and as Tripp pointed out, you know, you know, our young gay black men, you know, who are 18 to 25 are unlikely to fit into that group, and yet they're the people that are at highest risk. Chip. No, I was going to kind of uh, say um, along the same lines Joe did. I, I think the people who are at highest risk at the time they're at the highest risk, most periods of high risk, are the least likely to take the drugs during those periods. And I'm not at all surprised by any of the data about PrEP. When you take anti-infective drugs and you're trying to prevent transmission of an agent that you're taking active drugs for, it actually uh, it'd be surprising if it didn't work. Uh, there's been uh, you know uh, an orgy of, of of literature and enthusiasm about artist prevention the last couple of years, who's surprised by any of it? The real question is, is it a science fair project or is it just another reason to uh, increase, uh, another reason to talk about the benefits of antiretroviral therapy? I see it really as more the latter. When you go to a place like Mozambique and most people who need the drugs aren't getting them and you say, oh, you know, if we run out and do test and treat everywhere in the country, we can get rid of this epidemic in 40 years. They say, we've got a 1,000 people dying every two months. Uh, this is not a priority for us. Uh, in Botswana, it may be a different story. So I think a lot of these things are uh, very much, uh, uh, you have to be uh, uh, applied and thought about in each microcosm, not modeled uh, by mathematical modelers as if everything is homogeneous. This particular patient, I was not enthusiastic about prescribing medications for because he wasn't a Bob Grant patient. He was a relatively low-risk individual with a couple of sexual partners a month. You said he was very responsible about his condoms and blah, blah, blah. Uh, that was not the population that Bob Grant studied. So uh, I think uh, before everybody kind of takes off with PrEP and PEP and all the rest of it, we have to put in the overall perspective of our health care system and of the way we're taking care of people with HIV who need it uh, and, and think about uh, – where we get the most benefit in terms of health uh, for the population that we all try to take care of. John. One of the things that um, we haven't talked about is the effect of doing intervention on people's attitudes in general. I mean, we have documented very carefully that heart has led to riskier sex. People are just think they think they've, they've got it made and I think this is that's something that may happen here yep. that, that, um, that as Paul said that you know we make no not much HIV but we may get a lot of syphilis and a lot of chlamydia and things like that right these studies that have been have been proposed as public health interventions were not performed as public health interventions Bob Grant's patients were followed very closely were seen all the time uh, and uh, uh, seroconversion was picked up and acted on. The HPT, the so-called HPTN052 study, was really HPTN052 ACTG5245. The, uh, the Division of AIDS told the HPTN they couldn't do that study unless they used the ACTG to help prepare the sites to actually deliver the drugs. Patients were followed with viral loads. Uh, when patients were found to be, uh, uh, in, when people were found to be infected, uh, they were treated. When people's um, when people who were being treated to suppress virus uh, had uh, detectable viral RNA in their plasma, um, uh, they were tested and uh, drugs were changed if necessary. That's not a public health intervention. So I think if anything about that study in the New England Journal that was really misleading was it was, it was put forward as something easy to do. It was not easy to do. 
It was being done in a setting where most people don't get barrel load monitoring if they're on antiretroviral therapy, very intensively followed. So uh, be careful about extrapolating from that to the end of AIDS in 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. So uh, a couple questions from the audience, um, and this relates to the adherence question in a, in a sort of different way. Is how much time is required for the drugs to get into the intracellular site and be active? So, in other words, kind of dancing around the issue of, of uh, anticipatory prep. That is, it's Wednesday, I'm going out Friday, I'll start it today and continue through Sunday. <laughs> Any, any thoughts on that? Well, I think Ashley Haas's data uh, are the ones that I think are the most biologically compelling, which suggests that what you're doing is not preventing the first cell from getting infected, but preventing uh, the initial round of infection from uh, productively leading to enough inflammation to pull in uh, the second wave of lymphocytes that then take the infection to the rest of the body. And that occurs several days after the actual first round of infection in the first cell. So there probably is a little more time uh, than one would think, although your point is well taken. The fact that the drugs get on board and stay there is why these work in people who are taking the drugs intermittently, because you're preventing that amplification for that second wave of replication. Yeah. And in fact, post-exposure prophylaxis, you know, even with AZT, works probably 80% of the time. At least that's what the data shows. Uh, so probably post-exposure prophylaxis with a more potent combination would be incredibly effective. So maybe another strategy we should really be thinking about more is kind of a more aggressive use of post-exposure prophylaxis. One, one thing that, um, and I don't know if this has been published yet, but, but um, Chip, you might know, or, um, is that um, in those monkey studies that Tripp mentioned, they, they have looked at intermittent. Um, uh, and one thing that was a, a little bit scary and disturbing to me is that, that what was important was the dose after the exposure. Right. So they needed doses before exposure, but, the, but if the monkey didn't get a dose after the exposure, um, and that, I think, gets to the expansion right. that you're talking about. So, again, in someone's mind, you know, they're sexually active, they're going out on Friday night, they take their pill on, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but they're done on Saturday morning, you know, you know they're done, so they don't take it Sunday or Monday because, well, I'm not sexually active on Sunday, I'm in church. Um, <laughs> well, speak um, for yourself, Joe, depends you know, so, on what the church, right? So, yeah. so in other words, yeah. you know, it, it really, we, we know so little about how this works uh, precisely. Um, the other thing that, that Tripp didn't mention, in the FemPrep study, that was the where the women, um, uh, not partnered women, that was partners in PrEP, but, but women who were at risk, they thought they weren't at risk. The seroconversion rate in those women was between 4 and 6% per year. They were at huge risk. They were giant risk. Yet they somehow perceived that they weren't at risk. The other thing that was a little bit scary about that study, too, is that despite pretty lousy adherence, they actually saw resistance in that study. Um, yeah. a, a small number of women, but, but um, they did see resistance. So, again, taking this intermittently and then getting infected, I think, is a, a very dangerous. Um, so the audience has a couple of questions. Oh, so we'll go through. That's good. No, it's a couple quick questions. Um, one one uh, question comes from a person who works in a Ryan White clinic where all obviously the patients are positive. Uh, the concern is, will these patients be tempted to sell their drug on the black market uh, to make some money? Is that an unintended consequence? Will that happen, you think? 
Well, certainly when you look at the FEMPREP study and, and try to look at adherence as uh, related to pill counts and, and uh, what people reported and then looking at drug levels, uh, there was a lot of reported uh, pill. There were a lot of pills that were reported to be taken that um, weren't taken. Uh, so uh, it would be a concern. If you think, though, about how much it actually costs to buy these drugs, um, there would be a, you'd be getting a dis big discount if you could afford to buy them from somebody who was reselling them. Right. Another question is uh, maybe a strategy might be to use drugs that weren't picked up by patients and putting those into some pool for uh, availability for PrEP. Well, uh, the pharmacists uh, would probably uh, Seize. stroke us all, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, I'm not going there myself. Okay. Uh, but also, there, there's still, at least in, in my neck of the woods, there's still a lot of people on a waiting list. So what we typically do is we don't assign the medicines until they come to be picked up. And those medicines that aren't picked up are just assigned to a different person in the, in the pharmacy itself. Um, and then uh, sort of a final question here. Uh, cost effectiveness, um, I think maybe there just, I think this gets to the crux of the issue, is it kind of, well, if not everybody's going to get infected who has exposure, it, and, and from a policy perspective, not use PrEP, but just sort of use more, put more emphasis on treating those who are infected and um, let the treatment as prevention sort of uh, dominate. Nobody wants to go for that. <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're, um, in the 0525245 study, um, they, uh, Ken Freeberg and his colleagues are going to do a cost-effectiveness cost analysis in the specific group that Chip outlined. These are discordant individuals um, where you treat the infected person. And you know, hopefully we'll see those results at the international conference this summer. But... You might imagine that given how effective it is, that it would be very cost effective uh, in addition. So right. um, I think it'll, you know, it, it won't be anywhere near $40,000. Right. Um, right. So I think we accompli I accomplished what I intended to sort of bring up some issues that are kind of current uh, that we see every day, this merging issue with PrEP we spent a lot of time on, but it's brand new. Um, I wanted to thank uh, the panel for their participation, thank the audience uh, for hanging in there with us, and uh, I'll turn it back over to the moderators. Thank you.